Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Fuse, a bomb podcast. 40 years ago... BOM began as a conversation between artists around a kitchen table in downtown New York. Today, Fuse brings you into the room to listen in on candid, unfiltered conversations about creative practice. Here's how it works. BOM invites a distinguished artist to choose a guest from any creative discipline, an art crush, a close collaborator, or even a stranger they've admired from afar. And we bring them together. No host, no moderator, no interruptions, just two artists in conversation. For this episode, we asked writer Maggie Nelson which artist she would most like to speak with, and she chose painter Tala Madani. I wanted to talk to Tala, one, because I've been thinking about her work a lot because I had written, been honored to write a piece for a show of hers coming up, so I'd gotten to immerse in her work a lot, but also because Tala's just one of my favorite living artists of all time, and it's not like a cerebral thing, like a thing that I went out and saw, it's just a thing that her paintings do to me. And I probably, like a lot of people, go around looking at art, trying to find anything that feels magic or that moves me. And if it really moves me, sometimes, not all the time if I'm moved, but sometimes if I'm moved, I have an urge to write sentences about the work. And that definitely has always happened to me with Tala's work. And it's, that's a much rarer thing than you might think. Maggie Nelson is the author of several books of poetry and prose, including the New York Times bestseller, The Argonauts. She teaches at the University of Southern California and lives in Los Angeles. Her latest work of nonfiction is On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint from Grey Wolf Press. Tala Madani is a Los Angeles-based artist who makes paintings and animations that prompt reflection on gender, political authority, and questions of who and what gets represented in art. She has had solo exhibitions at museums worldwide and in 2022, she will be the subject of a mid-career retrospective at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. In the course of their conversation, Maggie reflects on the process of writing On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. The pair discuss how to capture magic in adult life, balancing doubt and trust, and Maggie's first experience writing about art. In the movie Flashdance, <laughs> when 
which was like of paramount importance to me as a kid. Absolutely. There's this moment like Jennifer Beals is doing her first kind of like strip thing on stage. And then the lead guy is amazed by it. And then his friend next to him tells him, you know, she works for you, you asshole. Then he has this like dumb smile on his face. But I only wanted to say that when I saw Sex Ed by God at the biennial and I was watching it and watching it and like loving it and loving it. And my partner, Harry, came over and I was like, do you know this artist? And he was like, she lives in LA, you asshole, kind of a thing, you know? Like, I had the same moment where I was like, I had like the same smile where I was like, oh my God, maybe I'll actually get to meet this person, you know? Now I have, and now I know you, and now um, those are some of the reasons, <laughs> circuitously, that I wanted to talk to you for this podcast. Well, I'm happy that we can't see each other's faces. You'd be like seeing my face go extremely red and blushing and a lot of big <laughs> smiles. No, but it's so interesting because, you know, we are in such a particular time right now where there is such a challenge imposed on art because of so many different, oh gosh, you know, interests and so many different stronger magnetic pulls or at least bigger not maybe stronger but at least you know we as artists I think one of the biggest things that any artist would want is audience and I think because of the lack of art education globally or its decline for so many years the focus has now shifted so much more technology and of course money always money so everybody sees art also in these terms of administration and or its commercial aspect. So just to even hear that one's work affects anybody in any way, the actual work is a gift and is amazing, actually, to hear that. So thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this actually is something I really wanted to talk to you about. And, you know, I didn't really know. I mean, it makes sense now looking back on it that when I would see your work, I would feel, you know, it would make sense in some ways that some aspects of how we maybe think about art or just living or different things or might correlate, but you don't necessarily know that when you look at someone's art. But again, it makes sense that you might. But I do find when I was working on the essay about you and I read all of the interviews you've given, I watched all the videos that, you know, were on YouTube and, and I just, you know, found myself nodding and kind of over eager agreement so many times about the, the positions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think what and I think this is the interesting thing. And I think I've just noticed because I have this art chapter about art in my new book uh, on freedom. And I've just I've been talking about the book a lot with a lot of people. And what has been difficult is that I mean, it's not been difficult. It's actually been interesting and challenging because this was the challenge of that chapter, but was to kind of test out by moving the abacus bead like in that chapter onto the onto the experience of of making like of makers, you know, um, and like what kind of one has to uh, you know, do in certain ways, not in a kind of heroic, oh, the artist who has to bleed and die and take risks for their art, but, you know, but but more just really like a, a kind of pragmatic and yet imaginative beholding of what making cre uh, is. And then also at the same time, what viewership or spectatorship or reading, you know, also can be, but kind of putting the abacus bead back on that relationship. And then when I go out to talk about the book, so many of the questions have been like, Art is capital and art is cultural capital and art is capital capital. Capital, and, capital, capital, capital. Um, You're right, yeah, right, right, and, right. And then art is symbolic, you know, in political struggles and many things that it's not like I'm not interested or willing to talk about. And the chapter makes gestures in different of those directions, but it was trying to kind of keep on the stage this other thing. And I feel like that you've talked about that so much. And I and, and that's the kind of thing where I think, oh, maybe it's no accident that I'm feeling so much with your work because you're pouring that care. One of the things that makes people 
so much more comfortable, I think, in talking about art in those ways is the sort of disconnect to the actual work. You know, it's yeah. it's easier work talking about the things around it because that's just the 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 life around the work. It's it's the everyday, and we have lost a lot of the language to talk about what the work does in relation to care, as you say, for instance. It's very interesting because in artworks, you can't sometimes do something directly, so you have to do it indirectly. So to make work that is about, let's say, caring, sometimes you have to be the more, the most sort of, I don't want to say uncaring. Like reckless or something, you know, sure, yeah. Which is so interesting because I feel like so many people who, when the intention gets translated very directly, it oddly, it becomes another thing. Sometimes it becomes, in fact, quite fascist. You know, it becomes yeah. quite forceful. It becomes, it, it loses its lightness because it's been asked so strongly to become a thing in itself, right? So it's been so forced to become something, it loses any kind of space around it. Now I'm talking abstraction. But it was actually really interesting to me reading Freedom. I was so curious. God, and this might be a very strange question to ask, but I was so interested <laughs> to know which chapter started first. Did it sort of grow organically or did you actually start with a certain chapter? I, I had a feeling that the first chapter, which was about the art, sort of contemporary art thing, was not the first chapter that you started the book with. No, it actually, weirdly, because it's the most esoteric chapter and like the least that anyone is interested in talking about. <laughs> weirdly, the drug chapter... It was, the, it was the starting point? A little bit, only in that I... I mean, I was... The, the introduction and the questions about how... I mean, I've always been really interested, and I think you are too, although maybe not in like academic terms, but like in nexus between the psychoanalytical and then, you know, what you might call like the political, but I mean, I don't even call it the political, but just kind of like the, the way that the squares of your paintings enact a removal from easily readable circumstance, but yet, of course, refer, make, or, you know, evoke for the viewer many, many different particular circumstances, but that kind of act of light removal that... That painting does? You mean the square of the canvas? like Yeah, but also the kind of allegorical space that your paintings in particular create without being concrete allegories. So I was very interested in what it meant in very politicized, hyper-political times to kind of try to write a book that was interested in, not, not exactly psychoanalytic, but kind of like what, what are the inner resistances to freedom or pleasures and unfreedom as much as the political struggle for agency and sovereignty and self-governance and everything. So I was interested in that. So that so the introduction and all that question kind of came came first in certain ways. But the drug stuff to me was a place where, and this actually relates in some ways to the intense play and like transgression in, in your work, is that drug literature, which is kind of a, a niche sphere that I have been interested in and, and, and have taught a class called Literature and Addiction for a while, you know, it's some of the raunchiest and kind of most amoral genre of literature that I know of. And I've found things in 
drug writing, fiction and autobiography that I just haven't, I have not found other places, you know, like, I mean, for example, this is, you know, maybe it comes with a trigger warning kind of a thing, but like, you know, I talk about a little bit about like in Straight Life, Art Pepper's book, you know, he has like a first person account of raping somebody in that book, autobiography that, you know, you just never hear that ever. Like what book would somebody describe that? So there was something about the way that a lot of these books, and I think this is also related to your work, like a lot of these books were not describing experiences of liberation. They were they were often describing experiences of kind of radical humiliation or abjectness or hitting bottom or um, and yet the books themselves can have a very thrilling quality. And that reminded me of a kind of, you know, problem of drugs themselves is like, you know, why why do we do things? Well, what you said in the book was really interesting in that the drug actually takes you somewhere you can't even, you don't control where it takes you. Right. It's not like you have this thing and then you're free. In fact, right. you are then beholden, as you say, to the actual substance. It's a very bizarre thing to posit that in the language of I'm free to do what I want to do or it makes me free. But it's, I guess it's in position to the socialized self, you know, or the, as you talk about the anxiety filled self. I mean, I do find that as much as it is a, it takes you in a direction of its own accord, it does free people of themselves without it. Yeah. So it's, I guess yeah. it's a freedom from the self or, or the self that is without the drugs, at least. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, since I don't, I'm like a sober person, I guess and now I'm just thinking about this for the first time because I'm thinking about things that you've said about paint and the materiality of it. In some ways, it's kind of like a drug-ish in that like you meet up with the material and the material is different from what you had in mind. And then there's like this dance. And, you know, I think since I am sober, like I do think about art as a place for one of the places where this kind of dance between other materials and a desire to disinhibit in some ways and discover in a self meet up. I was reading interviews with you and I thought it was hilarious when I was thinking that and then I read that where you were talking about painters being like heroin addicts like always searching for the first time or something you actually said the more you paint the harder it is to paint and I yes it's I, true it's true and I really feel like that about writing and which was a, not something I saw coming in my youth and I was also dying to talk to you about that as well that's so interesting I had an, the heroin addict thing analogy to that is, is good freedom is American in, in many ways, you know, it's an American product, the idea of freedom. So I feel like there's also the, a very specific cultural dynamic. It's not universal. But the idea of sovereignty, even the idea of like autonomy and sovereignty, this is all extremely American. And I think the fact that you're dealing with it in this book has to do with what it's the big American ad, right? It's like it's what American sells to itself, to its own psyche. It's like what it's brought up on. And it has to, but then it tries to actually deal with it. I feel like the idea of consumerism is so tied up with that. You know, there is this book called The Invention of Cool, right? Have you come across this? It's all about sort of in no. the 70s, how this idea of individualism and cool and your own style was then taken up by advertisers mm -hmm. to then sell to you all kinds of products and give you the sense that you're choosing it. You know, you're, you have the agency. It went into complete advertisement mentality. So... Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it, you know, running around wanting to be free, you'll never be free. <laughs> the moment you think about it, 
you've lost it. And I feel like it's such a big ask for anybody that it, then it becomes such a distraction to the actual work of life, you know, that is species to species, person to person. It's a very interesting problem. Because also, of yeah. course, when I say it's an American project, now America has been the cultural, everybody looks to America. Let's say like, even if China takes over in terms of an economic superpower or whatever in 10 years or 20 years, culturally, I think people are still looking to America for their next kick. So it's also sold this idea of freedom then to everybody else. I mean, when you were talking before about art and indirectness and the difficulty of like putting art in service of care or something or another value, there's a kind of, and I've written about this a lot in The Art of Cruelty, but that, you know, the, the emancipatory, to want art to emancipate is another form of wanting it to do something to other people. And of course, whenever you want to do something to other people, you know, there's an aggression in that, you know, like you've diagnosed that they have a problem, that you, you've you got the fix and that you're going to make something that's going to fix it, you know? And I think... I'm really interested in what you talked about, about this problem of kind of disconnecting from the work. And I, and I maybe, I don't know if we want to talk more about what you see as like, a, like relating it to a decline in like in our education. I don't, I haven't thought about it from that angle. I do think for me, and I don't, you know, my, my deep hope is that it's not retrograde or reactionary. I don't think it has to be, but I do think that something about that connection to the work like reconnecting to it insofar as that has to do also with like an experience of presence where like as you said instead of letting everything you already know about the world <laughs> be the center you're you're actually letting this other thing like this painting be the center for a minute yeah and and letting it teach you something that you didn't know before you stood in front of it and I mean that was how I was taught um, by a very great mentor of mine Marianne Cause when I was in graduate school I'd never written about art before I was I wanted to uh most most of my friends were artists and I loved art, but I didn't know what to, I, and people were asking me because I was a young writer. They were like, oh, come write about my show. Come write about this. And I was like, I don't know how to do this, you know? And so she would assign us to go to the Met because I was at school in New York and to just pick a piece of art each week and stand in front of it and write about it. And it was like one of the hardest things I ever had to do just because I had no idea how to do it. Like I knew how to do a lot of other things as a writer and I just had no idea what to do. But I think about it all the time because I realized now in retrospect that she was just, she was asking for uh, us to do something very awkward. I wish everybody would do that. Yeah. I mean, to just to go stand in front of something and think about what is it doing to you, as opposed to just also reading about what it does to other people. I feel right. like we've also gone right. so used to experiencing artworks through history books, so that we, we feel like we have to read about it, understand where it's come from, which is very good and well if you're interested in that direction. But that's not its purpose. I mean, the painting is not there so right. that you can understand about when the author, when the painter was born and which city was painted on. The painting is a thing in itself that it wants you to think about it, right? So we've, we've because we've, again, uh, put the artwork in a kind of an administrative sort of channel, we have lost connection to the actual object. Again, I do think to have the kind of visual literacy, it's great to know as much as possible. So of course it's great to know about its history, but to give the agency back to any anyone with, with faculty to actually be able to just stand in front of it and just see what they see, 
what, what it does for them, to become more selfish, ultimately. That's the whole point, to not feel that it's anything but an artifact that another human's made. And you're a human, and so you can relate to it negatively or positively or dismiss it however you feel like. And I think that's an important agency we have to give back to public, you know, because there is a there is a separation there. Yeah. I mean, maybe this links into something else just more, you know, mundane that I wanted to talk about, which is that I am not seeing you right now, but I saw that you were in your studio when we first signed on. And I know that you've been working. I know we both also have little kids and I, the COVID times uh, has been like, I mean, I haven't been out to be able to see other art for so long. (laughs) Yes, that's very true. Yeah. And it's made me think a lot about, as I'm describing this, going to the Met and standing in front of things, you know, how poorer my life, I mean, it's richer in certain ways, but how, how in this aspect, how poorer it's been, you know, in the past 18 months. And I've tried really hard to think what, okay, well, if that's not part of this time, you know, look, John Berger lived in, you know, a small village in France and only probably got into London a couple times a year to see work. Like there are people who don't live in towns with, you know, museums and galleries, and it's okay that you're going to learn something else for this 18 months, but it's been hard for me. And I wonder what, how it's been for you. See, for me, I always go to um, films and literature and, and, and uh-huh. text. Yeah. So I haven't had as, I mean, I absolutely have missed seeing certain things, but not in the same way, because yeah. I feel like we do maybe ask other disciplines for a bit of a release yeah. from our own discipline, yeah. maybe. Yes, and absolutely. I have such yeah. a strong mimicking, sort mm-hmm. of de facto mimicking. Um, I mean, it's not as bad as I make it sound, but I basically, for inspiration, I, I don't really find that I can look at, even, I mean, I mean, obviously I would just look at, if I look at a lot of Goyas, I'll just start making Goya paintings, basically. Mm-hmm. It doesn't leave me as much as I need it to leave yeah. me, right? So it's yeah. good that it's in Spain and I can visit it once in a while, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, but happily, we do have some amazing collections in LA, obviously. But it's also so interesting. I was thinking about uh, light and, you know, mm-hmm. so many paintings were not seen in the kind of light that we have. I think they yeah. were for a long time candlelit mm-hmm. in spaces that they were in institutions. And that's also so interesting to see how we're how pigment and paint translates in, in, in a different space. And I was asked about, actually, I don't, I need to say this, but I, we don't even have to have this in the interview if we don't want to, but God, the NFTs. Yesterday, I had to have a big discussion with someone about NFTs and that's just depressing. So we don't have to talk about that. I don't know what that is. Oh God. I don't, I don't know if I know enough about it to be able to like put it in a podcast, but they are basically, they have a digital signature. I'm looking it up. It's a digital asset that can be anything online. <laughs> so, but oh, NFTs as art, Artworks. Everybody is okay. like on this because the interesting thing for tech people is that it has a code behind it. So you know where it's mm-hmm. been. And people are really, because of cryptocurrency, they're really interested in using and selling it and buying it. Mm-hmm. I think Christie's just auctioned Beeple, okay. which was a huge digital art. Um, basically JPEGs or basically art and for very expensive, I don't know how much it went for. So there is like this interest in, there. it's like a very, and the whole point that it misses is that you're not having an experience. There is no experience. And the mm-hmm. argument that people in the tech industry make is that the new generation is only experiencing things on their phone anyway. So what's the difference? Mm-hmm. Like if you're only looking yeah. at paintings on Instagram anyway, just might as well be looking at NFTs and you can exchange that and you can change that. So this is where, again, the commodity, you know, we had like mm-hmm. is, is coming in um, because of the deficiency of people being versed in the language of the visual mm-hmm. arts. It can easily be taken over with exactly the interest 
of the code behind the work because people just want to see who had it and supposedly be honest about it. Their big tick is like when it gets sold over and over again, the creator, the artist can get 10% over and over again, not just the first time. And of course, these things have also been implemented in the real world. I think what I'm really interested in too, though, is something that, I mean, I'm interested in two things. We can talk about light more, but I also, you seem to have, an ability to understand your your art and art in general in time um, in a way that I think is, you know, in tension with a kind of presentism and like obsession on the on the contemporary. And I think it's one that I was trying to write about in this chapter on art that like, it's not the same thing as an artist being like, I want to make timeless things that live for centuries. It's not that. It's more just understanding oneself when one's making work that the question of like the immediate reception or the culture such as it is right now, it just, it, it cannot be its only sphere, like, or it's only, it's only magnetic pull. And I think, and I think, I just, I'm really curious because for me, like, again, I, I want to figure out a way to have the conversation about this that doesn't sound regressive. Like people will always, people will always read books or they'll always have paintings. I think I can tell you where that comes from. I think for me, that comes from a complete disinterest in art. Actually, I have no romantic attachment to art at all. I didn't mm-hmm. grow up with art. I never went to any museums until maybe I went for, until I was in God late in high school, where I went to a museum in San Francisco from Oregon. I mean, I didn't even go to the Portland. It wasn't in my periphery. I mean, I was interested in making art. To me, it was a it was an expressive thing. It's for me, art is totally about sublimation. I mean, when I'm making work, mm-hmm. I'm sublimating. Mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z, which is so much about myself in the world today and and the politics of Mm -hmm. power and the politics of money and the politics of whatever it is that that I can see or feel or project Mm -hmm. onto. Uh, That's familiar to me on some level. So there's absolutely no nostalgia for me about art history. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm deeply interested in it as as, as a viewer, but not as a maker. I'm not aspiring to, you know, there's, and I think I realized that nostalgia in itself is a very dangerous position to have because Mm -hmm. it's a psychological, it comes out of fear. It comes out Mm of a disinterest in the the now. Mm -hmm. It comes out of, and it's Trump on some level, right? It's like whatever conservatives can pull on those same, and not to say that we all don't have it, it's in all of us, right? Some idea of something that was better. But if you feed, if you make your work on it, if you can't separate some psychological kind of need or something that is, and to make your whole work about that, then you're also feeding that back into the, the population and not actually giving them something mm-hmm. in return, right? You're actually giving them the problem as opposed to any solutions. Basically, you're turning your public more conservative uh, if you're invested in nostalgia. So that I, I think I think it's really important to think about art making in real terms and not as separate terms, not separate from life. It's not separate from life because it is an artifact. It's the same human psychology that makes it and reads it, that does everything else, that does vote, that does parent, that does talk to its neighbor or doesn't or whatever. I think that's maybe where it's coming from, what you're explaining. And how do you, like, when you say that about, like, having it be on a continuum or, you know, part and parcel of all those things, like, what is that? Um, I mean, I don't make sure that it's on a continuum or anything. Yeah. It simply is on a continuum because I'm another human being sure. making it. You don't have to work sure. for that, you know? Yeah. 
But how does that work with like, okay, so there's this kind of phrase people use sometimes when they're feeling, you know, either good or bad about art, but whether well, they'll kind of talk about like whether or not it's a kind of like state of exception where like certain things, whether they're ethical things or whether they're whatever things like, you know, can or should be held in abeyance, you know, in a certain way. And I think, I don't think about it as a state of exception. Can you explain that a bit more for well, me? Well, yeah, I'm curious for you as to how, how that feeling of art not being separate from any of those things also relates to what I feel is one of your work's like major claims and achievements, which is that you are allowing yourself these spaces, you know, that you're, you're inventing spaces of fantasy and it, or sublimation or however you want to, whatever mechanisms you want to call it by, in which much more is possible. And I'm just curious how you understand those two things. So as an artist, first, I think, I mean, you know, I teach as well. And I, and I always say, you, you have to be, you can make anything you want. As yeah. unacceptable as it is, you don't have to show it. See, yeah. that's a very different yeah. thing as well. Like to yeah, make yeah. something and then to show it is also very different, right? Mm -hmm. So you can make, if you need to make something, by all means, Again, if you have to make something that hurts like someone physically, that's a different thing, right? I'm talking about, right. there are a few different things. There's a first thing is about um, trusting yourself. There's another thing about understanding that we're processing. We're all processing and making is also part of processing. And we're absolutely, we'll be making tons of mistake and not mistake. We will be t uh, stepping on so many toys, so many toes mm -hmm. as we're processing. But it's only through actually doing that where you understand the dance of, oh, I, sh I went too forward. I should want step one back. I should have gone to the left where I went right. And this is what's called the studio practice. So make it and then understand it, read it remake it, become your own audience. If you immediately just cancel a subject, a position out for yourself because you don't feel you should or you can or it's the temperature today, you're just reacting. You're not actually allowing yourself as a maker to process even for a possible audience that might, you know, process it with you. I also feel like it's a dance between really trusting yourself and really doubting yourself. You have to immediately question everything you do as much as trust and have total faith to actually do it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's like this thing of do it, question it, do it, question it in a very mm -hmm. intense way. And then of course, in a, in a really practical way, that becomes very difficult if you actually listen to anybody else. Because people right. will come in with all kinds of interests, you know, clapping for you or telling you not to do right. something. And you really yeah. have to just um, yeah. shut the door. Yeah. You have to understand what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also, I think, like you're saying with your clapping, it's like um, there's a weird thing in, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like it when people like my books and stuff. If you feel well beheld by, by a review or by a um, consideration, that can feel really good, you know. But at the same time, I think, you know, any artist, as you go along, as the Buddhists have it, like praise and blame are two sides of the same coin. And like the love and the hate have a weird way of feeling like producing a similar reaction in you, which is kind of to say, I think I don't need either of these things. I think I need to go back to work, <laughs> you know. And that's the, exactly the truth for the maker. And I think when people yeah. say something positive, they're talking about their themselves, their experience. It's not about the right. work. To aspire to something is one thing. But to think that something is because someone else has had that experience of it is not productive for someone who, as a maker, should grow. 
you know, and should not kind of. But we have a lot of distractions right now, namely, again, administrative and commercial entities that are much bigger than the artist, you know, to, to a large extent, yeah. their, their size, right? So it's a lot of, it's, it's important for, I think, young artists to, and even older artists to understand. Funny, we're in a, in a moment where we're really quite afraid of making a wrong step. Not just like art makers, politicians, you know, anybody, because mm -hmm. the public eye seems to have become, uh, it's mm -hmm. more immediate with social media. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the fear of that is quite crippling, I think, for so many people. You know, I feel like I've heard a lot of people say, and I and I think it's true in some ways that these are kind of like anti-art times or anti-intellectual times. I think sometimes like what to do if you find yourself there and in, in such times. And I think, and this is where the time thing comes in as part of me just feels like, well, you know, no time lasts forever. So the worst thing that you would do would be to just say, oh, you know, people don't like thinking, I guess I won't think. Or people don't like, you know, people are down on making, I guess I won't make. It's like you, there's this little essay that I write about in On Freedom. I don't write about it. I just reference it by the composer Schoenberg, who is called How One Becomes Lonely. And it's like a little short story, not short story. I mean, it's his narrative of, of of the praise and blame of his career in innovative music and the times when he was, you know, thrown off the stage, you know, to the times when he was beloved and said he was, you know, the, the second coming in music and then the long periods of indifference in between. And I think that no matter what kind of times you find yourself in, like just figuring out how to keep on keeping on. And like you say about the administrative, um, like becoming a kind of manager of your own work, I mean, it's something I really also really wanted to talk to you about. It sounds all well and good to keep on doing your work, but as you say, not only are there the distractions of the times or of social media or of all various administrative forces, you know, there's also just the fact that like, if it's true that the more you paint, the harder it is to paint. And if it's true, and I hate to say this, but I wrote about this when, around Sarah Lucas, who said this, which I thought was fascinating that Sarah Lucas of all people would say this. She was like, I always am looking for magic. And as you grow older, magic's just harder to come by. And I thought it is. And then I thought, you know, and then I thought about it a lot and I, I really feel like, I mean, especially raising kids and, you know, like, and seeing kids through like their teenage years, you know, to know how much magic that they're kind of, I mean, pain and suffering too, but to know what it feels like when you're kind of neurologically younger and things are imprinting so big and they're new experiences and you've never seen X, Y, or Z before. And just to know all that and then to know about this kind of neurological, I wouldn't call it deadening. I just would call it, you know, there's just more tricks kind of have to be performed sometimes um, in order to keep your curiosity, you know, nourished and alive. And I'm just curious as to what you have, what you've been thinking on all those accounts, you know. I, uh, God, I, we, don't, we talked about Alan Phillips uh, the, other, the other time. Yeah. He has this thing where he talks about how when you're a kid and you're reading something, it's all possible. So when you, the kid yeah. gets into a book, let's say, there's no limit on the projection and, mm -hmm. and you can read everything. And as we get older, you just read things that you agree with. You just want affirmation of your mm -hmm. own position. And then, of course, how could the mm -hmm. magic but all not be dead because you're just affirming <laughs> your own position constantly, right? right? 
So I think to yeah. some extent is to seek things that you disagree with, not disagree with like necessarily in the same, but that are not in your um, highway, however that is, right? Mm -hmm. To some extent, I find the problem exhaustion. I mean, for me, yeah. right now, I feel the impossibility of seeking that, even changing the highways, as just tiredness. That also is temporal. And I was thinking about how, yeah. you know, Dali, like, purposefully didn't sleep for three days so that he would fall asleep, wake up immediately and make a drawing to see how he would, what he would do as a sleep-deprived mm -hmm. person, right? as, as someone mm -hmm. utterly exhausted. Mm -hmm. So I feel like also as a, as a maker, if you see yourself or your experience, mm -hmm. all of it as a plausible place to start, exhaustion mm -hmm. and tiredness become part of that too. It's just about the willingness to see it as plausible as opposed to, no, it has to just be this one thing that I need to access. This is the thing that I make, right? Yeah. If your work is about anything to do with your experience as a person, then it's all food for thought, hunger, you know, uh, being too full, yeah. being too angry, being too whatever. But, you know, that's why it is magical, right? It's, it's, it is rare. Right. It is heroin. It's, it's um, yeah, yeah right. we also have to be okay with that, I guess, to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. For it, it being rare, yeah. It yeah. being rare and yeah. also the value of other experiences that are not magic, like utter exhaustion. Right. Yeah. The value of experiencing yeah. making yeah. work yeah. that, like what would a totally, yeah. a consciousness that's exhausted, could that even make it work? I mean, I'm right. deeply interested in if someone knows that they're departing soon. And of course, in the history of art, yeah. there's been many people who've had to face yeah. imminent death and what do they make and how do they make it? You know, yeah. that's been a, yes. a, a long interest for me. I collect um, that kind of story. Obviously, it's riddled with, of course, AIDS and cancer of the two things. Yeah. It's so funny. I was just telling my students the other day that I was going to teach a class next year on AIDS and cancer writing of people facing death. We must have a similar archive that we have collected of that kind or at least a similar, like, interest. I mean, I'm not sure if I have yeah. an archive archive, but right. I'll take your class. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> but I love this bit about the not magic, too, because I think that, like you say, everything is everything, you know, and in the last, you know, year and a half or so, I mean, just believing, again, and kind of trusting, not even in yourself or anything, but just trusting in life that everything that's happening is is going in and it doesn't even it's not even trusting like oh it will come out as a productive piece of art it's more just like i'm just living insofar as living it's about not feeding the anxiety of productivity right it's like right. what it, yeah. it what it is is like actually an anxiety i mean i think that's the malaise of today if anything uh, globally yeah. right yeah. i mean i was thinking that also in relation to parenting that parenting which is the thing that people have done since humanity it's the most ordinary everyday thing what is going on with yeah. our generation and seeing yeah. it as such an impossible thing and i think it's the level of an anxiety and the impossibility yeah. of just being like just yeah. all your kids want to want from you is just for you to see them and this like yeah. difficulty of not of losing yourself you know of like not being yourself to just to just sort of be yeah. an audience for somebody else i go back to that whenever there's a problem if we can pinpoint an anxiety it becomes easier to maybe then i mean you talk about it so much in the book you know about and i yeah. think you're completely right i mean the environmental the impossibility of actually like sitting with that to some extent i think it's extremely human not to be able to mm -hmm. you know because we need to yeah. survive psychologically yeah. the threat is is so real and it's so imminent and it will dissolve us if we're really honest yeah. about it i think 
I tried in my book and I try in my life to, just like you're saying, I mean, I feel like I don't, you know, when you've said, you know, all the, you know, all the men in your paintings or whatever are you or different things, like, I feel like I don't have as much difficulty seeing myself. Like, I could be a climate denier. Like, I that seems to me like a reasonable response <laughs> to the anxiety. I mean, no one listening to this should think that I am or that that's where I'm just saying that, like, I get under the pressures, I get why psychology morphs into whether they're just wrongheaded or all the way to toxic or it doesn't feel mysterious to me and I think and I think it's in part because I have a lot of anxiety and I struggle with a lot of anxiety and I try not to have it uh smear out with being a noxious force on others but I can I, but it's force is real and it's and it's something that you know I that I think a lot about the effort that it takes to you know not if I'm feeling I mean I I'm not you know, as I'm sure you can relate to, like, I'm, I'm the worst parent when I'm feeling the most anxious. I'm, I'm the least patient. I am the least kind, which is strange because often my anxiety is about my child. <laughs> you know, like I'm wanting it to be well, but yet that, that very anxiety separates you from making them feel the presence that you're talking about that they desire, you know? I'm really happy you said that, though, about the climate thing, because I feel like it's really important to just... The the antidote to this moment is just to to understand and empathize with shitness. You know what I mean? If with, like, that we're going to be shit and other people are going to be shitty and and not to be so demanding of other people to to, to see that it's going to be a process. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't yeah. be aspirational, we shouldn't do the work yeah. to go through it, right? Yeah. But to that, yeah. through doing that, I mean, you know, I think the capital riots were so um, important to happen. I was so sad in that moment from liberal art community, the slogans of lock them up, lock them all up. This moment after all this discussion from the left about less police force, to immediately go to lock them up, you know, as opposed to they did it, everyone should be able to if they have something that they think is at stake. Not only should they do it, maybe the left should too without being locked up when it's something significant. I don't know. I mean, I'm not suggesting, I mean, again, not to be taken. No, I mean, I think I think you're right, though, that I think, and I felt this in response to, to my book, which is that I'm totally riveted by the anti-carceral, like the, the importance of all of that. And I'm utterly riveted by how that seems over and over again to crash up against a lock them up, you know, mentality. And I, it's not like I don't understand um I I mean, it's like a Cohen, you know, it's like I don't understand it. I do. I find the provocations of letting go of carceral thinking so profound, you know, and so important that it really, uh, and and I find, you know, and I knew this would happen with this book and that's fine, like, because I knew that that was the risk it was taking, but I feel like the easiest read to me is that kind of first layer that people go through where they kind of say kind of this kind of first level where it's kind of like any moving into empathy at all that people feel like doesn't have enough moral condemnation attached to it just produces panic you know (laughs) in people as if you can't have your convictions while also being interested in projects of radical compassion and I understand why for some people they feel at odds 
but I feel like I have done enough. And we're totally like way off topic of art, but you know, a lot of this processing, I, I mean, I feel like I did a lot of this work a long time ago, which was that, you know, I grew up with a murder in my family that was very affecting and my mother's sister and I wrote two books about it. And it really bothered me when people would talk about victims, like the like uh, families of victims and say, oh, they're so out of touch with their own anger that they've gone so far as to be advocates against carceral solutions or against the death penalty. Like, like as if they would like pity victims' families who hadn't yet gotten in touch with their, their vindictive anger. And it just, the whole thing made me crazy for years. The mechanics of fear producing in this yeah. country, they're so strong that there is no... It's so difficult to work with. Yeah. I mean, what you said, radical compassion. I mean, the fact that compassion has to be termed as radical compassion, that because it's in the mainstream is so impossible, you know what I mean? That it has to become yeah. radical for yeah. it to, to register. Yeah. It's quite problematic, but I think it's about, again, the psychology of the big fear grip on people, right? Fear of Al-Qaeda feel of ex Islamic ex right. extremists. Yeah. When, when the capital riots happen, you know, this idea that when you have a population that doesn't have access to the same economic opportunities or the same educational opportunities to have a bit of magic. Because the magic that we're talking about in art is not in the work, it's in the, what happens while you're making it. It's an experience, it's a life experience. So if you have a population that you've not serviced as a country, as a, as a, as a society, to give it a possibility of that, and of course, when it goes on riots and when it's been consumed by total propaganda constantly and gets a bit of wind on its wings and thinks it can do something and have an experience with that, uh, when it wants to get, grab on some power, one has to understand that. And that's exactly what happens within you know, the Islamic countries, etc. So I think it's really important actually to unpack these things not let them sort of be driven in our mind by media, basically, into places that we can't yeah. touch anymore as a concrete yeah. object that we can't actually then yeah. um, mold and change. I mean, this is the shit we live in. I guess what I wanted to, to, what I was really curious about was, um, I've seen you say a couple times that like you felt like the work you were making when people come to you and they say like, oh, this is really transgressive or really out there, whatever. And then you've said like, actually, it feels kind of PG to me compared to where I feel like I, where I could go. And I, I've always really related to that. I mean, I think your work is more transgressive than mine, but I am a little bit familiar with going into auditorium after auditorium when we used to go to auditoriums. We don't anymore, but like when people would say, you know, like you're so brave or this is so out there or whatever and it always felt to me like I, I my my inner response was like I haven't even begun like this is like there's nothing in here that is even even the beginning but when I hear it from you where you, whereas your work does seem like it pushes more fully into the imaginative spaces that I don't that I don't go to because I don't have an imagination sadly which is also what I wanted to say why I chose you to talk to is that I'm totally riveted by having a lot of overlaps with our concerns and thinking I'm just riveted by your relationship with your imagination because I don't feel like it's one that um, it's not a connection that's well uh, oiled in my own mind anyway I just wanted to know if you had anything more you wanted to say about that PG feeling you know it's 
Exactly as you said, I don't think I've even started yet, and I don't, and I'm interested. Gosh, it's so interesting because I also feel like, but it's so amazing that you say that because you have seen so much work. I feel, and you've written about, you know, obviously your book on cruelty. You've written about artworks that are very much out there, and I feel like when it's painting, I guess with painting specifically, I feel there is such an abstraction. Involved when you turn an idea into an an image. I mean, and I've worked so hard, in fact, to make work, my work extremely palatable <laughs> to some extent as a, as a project in itself, because that's what I thought the project required, especially early on when I started the very early works that I like in two thousand six, two thousand seven. Part of the challenge for me was to make like almost candy-like work, you know, like tiny little delicious things kind of a thing that still has my ideas in them. So there was a point where I was very purposefully making pastel works, right? Like PG-looking works. Then there is like um, the resistance of your own psyche, not completely letting you go into the deep end or taking you step by step and how slow that takes, how many steps there has to be. So that's what's exciting about, for me, about, you know, continuing in the studio, you know, obviously it's not how easy it goes, it's how difficult it goes. That brings yeah. like me back here, basically, you know, it's yeah. not the mastery yeah. of the thing. It's the fact that it masters over me in a sense. I was just teaching this week an independent study of reading the Marquis de Sade. And, uh, and when we were reading, I was just thinking this week that like, you know, Saad, of all the things like that there is to learn from, from Saad, like one of them is just how watching someone push as far as they can push ad nauseum length, like, you know, that, that, yeah, ad nauseum, like how it's so, how it's so eventually not, like you can feel his panic that there's nowhere else to go. Like there's no there there. Like, it, like, like it, it's just a, um, and I, I think about sometimes like, I mean, this happened to me with On Freedom where like, instead of pushing in that kind of transgressive direction, I kind of thought a kind of scholarly idiom right now that takes a lot of time to think through some kind of unsexy thoughts is actually my biggest risk right now, you know? And like, what's difficult and interesting for you, you know, in studio time or in writing time is not always um, gonna be this kind of superficially transgressive pushing. You know, the risk, depending on who you are and where you're at, the risk can be anywhere. No, absolutely. I mean, the thought is a really interesting one because of the repetitiveness, but also because it's, it's such a call for religion. I mean, it's in a way such a, the kind of Christian language in that, the kind of mm -hmm. argument for morality that the victims constantly kind of spew out is, is stronger sometimes than the descriptions of the violent acts, the kind of request for a kind of moral behavior. It's a really interesting one to, to think about actually. Thank you so much, Maggie. That was so lovely speaking to you. Tala, I love talking to you. I love your work. I'm delighted that we did this, and uh, I hope there's just more and more to come. Fuse is produced by Libby Flores, associate publisher at BOM. It is edited and engineered by Will Smith, with production assistance by Isis Piero. I'm Chantal McStay, associate editor at BOM magazine. Our theme music is Black Origami by Jalen. This project is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. <laughs>